This is a Stimulus Network podcast. The Cosmic Shed. Hello and welcome to The Cosmic Shed. I'm Andrew and today's episode is an interview with astronaut Abby. My name is Abigail Harrison, but I'm more commonly known online as Astronaut Abby. I aspire to be an astronaut, and I'm also the founder of the Mars Generation nonprofit, and soon to be the author of Dream Vague, How to Reach for Your Stars, a new book with Penguin Random House that's really all about exciting people and giving them the resources that they need in order to figure out what it, what their big dream is and then to actually go out and accomplish it and to set goals and reach them. To give a little bit more background about who I am and where this name Astronaut Abby came from, I have been doing science communication for about 10 years now, um, largely through social media. That's how I started was when I was about 13 years old, I started talking about my big dreams of becoming an astronaut and someday hopefully the first astronaut to walk on Mars. I started talking about all of that online through social media and I ended up having an incredible and fantastic response. I now have uh, over or nearly a million followers on my platforms and have been able to um, share experiences at space experiences around space exploration in different venues in different ways with my followers for for a very long time now yeah i i, I think i've been following you all that time actually uh, <laughs> online so it's it's been um fascinating to watch your progress can you just tell us about you know 13 starting on this process and it's always been um your plan to be the the first person, I guess maybe you don't mind if you're not the first, just as long as you get to walk on Mars, right? But you're, um, the first would be great, obviously, but just to, right. to do it would be good. But so where are you? What's, what's, we'll talk about the book, which clearly has this plan and the kind of how you go about the plan, but how, where are you on your plan at the moment? Yeah, so I'm now 23. Um, like I said, I started doing all of this when I was 13 and it's been 10 years. I graduated with my undergraduate degree last year from um, Wellesley College, and I am now a researcher at Harvard Medical School. So I work in an immunology and genetics uh, and molecular biology lab studying the human genome. I'll hopefully be going to graduate school probably next year to do an advanced degree, a master's or a doctorate. Okay, you're not sure what yet? I don't like to say anything as a certainty until you can actually nail it down and say, I'm doing a doctorate here and it'll take, you know, X long. But my plan is to do a PhD. In what sort of area? In uh, in biology. I haven't decided yet if I'm going to what area I'm going to do, but I'm leaning towards either molecular biology or marine biology actually is another area that I'm very interested in and um that ties really heavily. My, my past research work before I joined this lab at Harvard was uh, at NASA at Kennedy Space Center at a lab there where I was doing astrobiology. And there's a really, really strong tie between astrobiology and marine biology, which you might imagine seeing as they're both um, really extreme environments. And one of the ways that we explore and think about and learn about the possibility of life in space is actually through marine biology and through looking at extreme environments and also through looking at how life originated on Earth, which is soundly within the marine biology field. If you're studying astrobiology 
at NASA? Well, you, you're not actually studying life in space because we haven't found any yet. So what are you actually studying? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's something that I do like to clarify whenever I can, because you say astrobiology, <laughs> and rightfully so, people get really excited about, oh, we found aliens. And sadly, that's not true yet. Um, so when I was at, uh, at this Kennedy lab, I was studying a bacteria called serratia liquefations, which is a bacteria found here on Earth that has the ability to live on the surface of Mars. And so we were simulating Martian surface conditions and trying to figure out what about this bacteria makes it so, what is so unique about this? What allows it to live under these incredibly selective and incredibly hazardous conditions on the surface of Mars? And that's important, not just because it's really cool and interesting, but also because it helps us drive the search for extraterrestrial life. It broadens our horizons of what we think and believe life can do and where it can exist. And it tells us we need to look in certain areas and we need to expand what those areas are and not just say that life has to look exactly like it looks on, on Earth. Life on Mars is going to be different if it's there when we find it, it will be different from life here on Earth. And, and the best way currently, until we actually have more, more, whether it's robotic prints on the, on the ground or human boot prints on Mars, until we have more information, the best way that we can go about searching for that is to study um, things here on Earth that would have the ability to exist there as well. Oh, it's fascinating. Yeah, but it's, we can study it here on Earth. We can kind of you know, do, um, as you say, analog versions of it, we can simulate it. We can then send robots to the surface of Mars to explore it. Why send people? There's a lot of things that robots can't do. The most successful missions in space exploration, at least in terms of the science that they've generated and the capability that they've had to do things, are missions that don't rely on just humans or just robotics. It's missions that look at the both of them and say, each of these are unique and they're different and they have different capabilities and they also have different limitations. How can we make the best of both of those? How can we combine them so that they support each other, so that they look out for one another's flaws and are able to make um, these missions more, more realistic and more doable? And I truly think that that's going to be a big part of humans on Mars in the future is humans picking up some of the slack of things that robots can't do, robots picking up the slack of things humans can do. Um, for instance, robots are already, they're currently doing that. We're doing advanced, or not advanced, um, advanced uh searching out right now of with robots, uh, essentially an advanced team that we've sent of go take a look at the surface, figure things out a little bit more. We'll decide when and where humans will be able to actually land. Um, and one of the one of the big reasons that we should send humans in the future, I'll give you two reasons, because I think that you have to look at both the science and the humanity of an issue like this. You can't really ignore either of them. The One of the big scientific reasons to send humans is because they're just better at making decisions than robots are. They're better at looking at something. A robot can look at a at 100 different rocks and it has to take samples and, and collect images and all of that of all of those and send that data back to humans here on Earth to figure out which of those rocks is important. A human can look at a hundred different rocks and immediately decide 
that's the one that has the characteristics that we're looking for. That's the one that's most likely to be important to the search for whatever we're searching for, whether it's searching for extraterrestrial life, whether it's searching for certain elements or minerals, whatever it is, humans are, are much more capable of making those kinds of decisions. And they're also able to do it autonomously, whereas robots often require human intervention. They, they have to be programmed and led by humans, which for a mission to Mars is an issue because there's sometimes as much as a 40 minute time lag in communication to get a signal directing a robot, to get a signal from Earth to direct a robot to do something on Mars can, can have a huge time lag. And sometimes you need things to happen instantaneously. So that's one big reason. The second big reason of why humans is inspiration and excitement and hope, which is that humans, I, I believe that at our core, part of what makes us human is to explore and to discover new places. And I think that it's going to be an incredible moment and an incredible thing for, for my generation and hopefully everyone on earth to know that we're still doing that and to, to know that we are taking risks and doing new things and exploring new places and then reaping all of the benefits that come along with that. So like we said, or like I said, humans are, they have um, difficulties that robots don't. And we're, we're still, we still struggle with sending robots to Mars and with getting to them to operate on the surface of Mars properly. But that's nothing compared to the struggles that we're going to have with humans and a human mission to Mars. It's gonna be massively difficult. And that difficulty right there is the reason to do it. Because when you have a massive difficulty, it requires you to figure out new solutions and those new solutions become things that improve life here on Earth. They become the insulation that we use in our house. They become the surgical tools that we use to do life-saving surgeries. They become the cell phones that you and I carry every day or the Zoom technology that we're using right now to have this conversation. And it's only by really, really challenging ourselves and pushing our limits in space that we're able to continue to produce new advancements that improve life here on earth to the fullest extent. Okay, I'm sold. I already was, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> That's why humans, but why you? Why me? Honestly, when it comes down to the point, I, and this is why I'm really careful to say, to never say that I will be the first astronaut on Mars, but just that it's an aspiration that I have and that it's a goal I'm working towards because I don't know what the future will be and I can't make that claim in, in good conscience. The world is a unpredictable place. And by the time that it becomes my turn or by the time it's reasonable for me, I may not be in a position or there might be people who are better suited. But what I can say is that this is a dream that I've had my entire life. And it's a dream that I've worked hard towards and I intend to continue to work really hard towards in the future. I've spent a lot of time considering what are the attributes that are going to be needed on a mission like this? What are the scientific backgrounds? What are the skills and all of those things? And I've spent time cultivating them. I've learned multiple languages. I speak Russian and Mandarin Chinese in order to be able to facilitate an international um, mission, which I believe is a, likely, a likelihood for something like this. When you look at a mis mission of this magnitude, it's, it's going to require not just 
more money, which is one truth, which is that it's going to be probably one of the most the most expensive mission and undertaking that we've done. But it's also going to require different perspectives and different ideas. And I truly think that it's reasonable to say this will be an international mission. So I've prepared in ways like that. I've also prepared by focusing my scientific and research career on um, areas that I think will be really impactful and important and that will be able to support a mission like this in multiple ways, support both the people on the mission and the work that uh, will be done once we get to Mars. Um, and then I've done plenty of other things throughout my life, such as public speaking and um, working on science communication and public engagement, because that's an incredibly important part of what astronauts do. It's, and it'll be even more important for the first astronauts, or like you've said, any astronaut who goes to Mars, whether they're the first or not, is a big part of why we do that is for them to be public figures and for them to inspire the next generation to do big things and to believe in themselves and to take those big steps. And I think that science communication and public engagement is, for many people and for me as well, it's a skill. It's not something that you're just immediately good at. It's something that should be practiced. And I've done a lot of practicing. Um, I've also done other auxiliary things, like I'm a pilot and an advanced scuba diver and skydiver and, and things like that. So I think that, and um, this is my resume now at 23. So hopefully by the time I'm actually applying to become an astronaut, I'll be able to say, I believe truly and fully that I am the best candidate for this mission. And that's what guides my, my path through life is really looking at how can I make that phrase true in five or 10 years when this would be a reality. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me a slightly odd question that's come to my head, which is if you had the choice today to get in a plane and fly up over the earth and have a look down or to get into a scuba diving outfit and get into the sea, which would you choose? Oh, that is a hard question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think that, I would still take uh, the ability to fly up and, and look down at the earth, um, mostly for the, the novelty factor, which is that I've done a lot of scuba diving and it's still, every time I scuba dive, it's still mesmerizing and beautiful and interesting and all of that. But um, like I said, novelty is always nice and I've done less i'm a, did when you said fly up and look at the look down at the earth did you mean um on a plane oh on a plane i thought you were my apologies i thought you were offering me an opportunity to go to space and i was like i've got to take that one <laughs> yeah 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 no i mean in a plane i mean obviously the the space one is the first choice is the primo option yeah <laughs> no that actually that does become more difficult to answer then because I've spent a lot of time like I've said doing both flying and, and having the opportunity to to look down on the earth and scuba diving they're different and incomparable I think they're the kind of thing where completely different experiences that make it really difficult to to choose one over the other what I will say about flying that makes flying one of the most incredible things is that every time that you do it it is so novel and it puts you into perspective as well. At least it does for me. I can't say this about everyone, but when I fly, especially when I'm piloting a small aircraft, it really makes me think about my place on Earth. And I imagine that that's the same feeling that space flight, space flight will bring up, is making you really think about humanity as a whole and your position 
in, uh, as Carl Sagan famously said, on this pale blue dot, this pale blue marble. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, one is we'll get to the book very shortly, but I've got I've got one other silly question. You've got the choice of two space missions. One is to walk on Mars, the surface of Mars, and the other is to scuba dive in the oceans underneath the ice of Europa. Which one are you going to choose? Oh wow! Again with these uh, these fun questions. <laughs> They're good what ifs. Um, I would still choose walking on the surface of Mars. I have to be a pragmatist about this and say that even in this imaginary scenario, I think that it's more likely that walking on the surface of Mars will happen within my lifetime. And I also think that, and this is another one of those reasons, because when you asked me why humans, why humans on Mars, I had to really restrain myself <laughs> from not just spending the next hour uh, talking about my personal opinions about why humans on Mars, because I have a whole laundry list of reasons why. But this is another one, which is that sending humans to Mars is essentially the next step in human exploration of our solar system and of who knows what else, the universe as a whole. It is us saying for the first time, we are going to go outside of Earth's orbit. So far, we've gone to low Earth orbit, where the International Space Station is, and we've sent humans to the moon, which is still within Earth's orbit. This is us saying for the first time, we are going to go somewhere that is outside of Earth's orbit. We are going to go to another planetary body, and we're going to do it in a way, because the mission requires it, that has semi-independence from Earth. Because when you're on a mission to Mars, not only can you not call back for a resupply or a rescue mission or something like that and have it arrive in a couple days, but you also, as I mentioned earlier, you can't call back for information and have it instantaneously. When you're on the moon, if you have a problem, let's say there was a medical problem, they could call back and they'd have a whole team of doctors of different specialties who would be able to walk the this didn't happen, but if it were to have happened, who would have been able to walk the astronauts through what they needed to do in that situation? When you go to Mars, that's not something that you have available. You have to be able to solve your problems and to handle whatever comes and whatever happens without immediate assistance, even in the form of information from Earth. And I think that that is the skill, that planning for that and then executing that type of semi-independence from Earth is the skill that's going to open up everything else for us. And so even though it may seem uh, at surface level or subsurface level, it may seem somewhat more exciting to get to scuba dive under the frozen ice of Europa or somewhere like that. I think that it's actually more exciting to walk on the surface of Mars because of what it does for space exploration and humanity as a whole, which is that it's the doorway that opens the rest of the universe for us to explore. That's a good answer. I'm not in control of these things and I never will be. But if I um, have the ear at any point of somebody who is, I think what we'll do is we'll send you to Mars first with enough fuel to go on to Europa and then that'll be fine. Oh, that, I like that idea. You should uh, you should be in charge. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't. I shouldn't be in charge of anything apart from podcasting. I think. But there's, so the book. Tell me a, a bit more about the book. Yeah. So, Dream Big: How to Reach for Your Stars. This is the first book that I've ever published, and it's not something that I thought that I'd do, especially not in my early twenties. It's, it was such a delight to write, and I think that it's even more important now than it was when I first started writing it. So I started writing it about a year ago, 
And obviously we weren't in a global pandemic at that time. (laughs) But even at that time, I thought that it was so important to provide the same opportunities that I've had to learn about chasing after a dream to everyone and especially to young people. So the book is appropriate for everyone, but it does have a focus towards young people. And the whole idea behind writing this was that throughout the last 10 years, I've had a lot of opportunities and privileges. I've gotten to travel to incredible places to learn about space exploration and meet incredible people, astronauts and engineers and scientists and and publicists and all kinds of people who are involved in making space exploration a, a rousing success. And in doing so, I've learned a lot, not just about space exploration, but about how all of those people got to where they got and how I can get to where I want to go as well. And I've gotten so much great advice. And um, Dream Big, How to Reach for Your Stars was really my way of passing that on to, to the next generation and to anyone who wants to learn. And like I said, I, I really, there's ups and downs to releasing a book during a pandemic. <laughs> One of the downs is that obviously you can't go out on a book tour or have a launch party or anything like that or do signings in person, anything like that. But I still think that this is a better time than ever for something like this to be coming out into the world because I think that there are a lot of people and especially a lot of young people who right now are scared and feeling a little bit lost and who things have changed a lot for them and the future looks different and maybe uncertain. And I think that having this kind of roadmap, this guidebook that will allow people to take control of their lives in and and help them to go a direction that they want and to to deal with uncertainties and fears and the difficulties that come along the way towards your future. I think that that's something that is needed now and something that I'm really excited to to be publishing with Penguin. It's a wonderful thing. I'm looking forward to reading it. I haven't got it yet, so I can't read it. Thank you. Yeah, I honestly haven't gotten a copy yet either. It's supposed to show up any day now and I'm because that's oh I'm so excited that's another difference with um with the pandemic is they don't send out gallery copies to authors anymore so I've only ever seen my my book on uh, a computer screen I got a digital gallery copy and I've been checking my mail every day to see has it come yet has it come yet because it's not real until it's (laughs) until it's a physical copy right so. Yeah, no, totally. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. Are you a science fiction fan? Oh, absolutely. Yep. I grew up on a a strong diet of science fiction. My That was actually one of my early exposures to space exploration was science fiction. I was always really interested in um, stargazing, but my secondary exposure to space exploration was through science fiction. My dad is a really big science fiction fan and so I grew up not just watching science fiction but also reading a lot of modern and classic science fiction yes I would describe myself as a science fiction fan for sure any highlights it's always a hard a hard one because it feels like choosing your favorite child which you just shouldn't do (laughs) I would say that one that I I really enjoyed reading um recently was uh, a couple years ago, I read The Leviathan Wakes, 
um, series. Yeah, which is really good. And if if anyone listening has uh, watched or heard of the show uh, The Expanse, that's based on this book series. The show is fantastic, but the books are better. It's how it usually goes, right? Is that the books are often, uh, especially if they're the, the source material for a show, they're at least to people who have read them, they have a loyalty or I have a loyalty to, to having read the books first. And um, I think they're fantastic. I think they were really enjoyable. The show's also good. It's very enjoyable as well. Yeah, exactly. That's 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 where this one's different, right? Because the show is also really good. It's really good. Yeah. <laughs> Have you been watching season five? Not yet. No. Don't say anything. I won't say anything. No spoilers. I promise. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, but but like back in the day when you were younger, was it you know was it the Star Trek, Star Wars type of things or? Yeah, it was. It was a lot of Star Trek and Star Wars and um, Babylon Five and things like that. <laughs> Um, but it was also, like I said, some of the classics of um, Clark and Asimov and, you know, people like that who um, I actually was really fortunate when I was, uh, when I graduated high school, um, a good friend of mine who actually also helped me to start the Mars Generation nonprofit, he was a lawyer who I knew who um, helped to do a lot of the legal paperwork to start up the nonprofit. Uh, and was also a big science fiction fan, gifted me a uh, a three-ring binder as a high school graduation gift that he had filled with printouts of his favorite short stories by classical science fiction authors. And what was really special about this was that it had actually been given to him by his dad, and then he'd added to it over his life of being interested in science fiction, and then gave it to me. And I really enjoyed going through that and and reading some of them and recognizing the handful scattered here and there that I'd read as a kid. And then also realizing just like how much more there was out there because there was really, a, there's a lot of classic science fiction. And I think I'd barely brushed the surface on a lot of it. It's not possible to do more than brush the surface. <laughs> of the yeah, best science absolutely. So it's one of those things. Okay, I have one more silly question. You're allowed to take one science fiction book and one science fiction film with you to Mars, what are you taking? For the movie, I'm going to give kind of a, it might sound like a canned answer here or a joke answer, but it's legit, which is I really enjoyed The Martian. (laughs) It's a little bit ironic to bring The Martian to Mars. (laughs) (laughs) But truly, I thought that that was one of those instances where not only was the book fantastic, and I love Andy Weir. I've had the opportunity to meet him a couple times and to you know sit on panels with him, and he is a really really fun guy. Um, he's really nice, and the book is great. But not only is the book great, but I think that the movie holds up to the book. I think that they did a really good job in that movie of capturing the spirit of the book and of also making it as accurate as possible because <laughs> that's something that when I when I watch movies especially as a, a big space nerd and someone who has worked in astrobiology and has been around the space industry in various parts for a long time now that I try my hardest to not be too critical of unrealistic 
sequences or things in space because there's so much artistic license that needs to be taken to to tell a story about space. Um, So I try really hard not to like base my opinion off of how realistic a movie is. But I do have to say that it was a refreshing breath to watch The Martian and to be able to see that obviously it's not all realistic, but it's so much more than most space movies. And I I really enjoyed that part of it. Plus, I thought it was just a a great movie based on a great book. Um, so that would be my, my movie answer. For a book that I would bring with me, I'm actually going to venture outside of science fiction here and say that not only do I like science fiction, but I like fantasy as well. I think often those two go hand in hand. And I would bring something by Brandon Sanderson because he's my longtime favorite author in in fantasy. Can't say exactly what I would bring by him, but, you know, something. (laughs) Okay, brilliant. Brilliant. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. What I would say to anybody listening is that we're big fans of Andy Weir too and he's appeared on three of our episodes in the past so if you can't get enough of Mars and the Martian then uh, go to that but if they want to know more about you and your desires to get to Mars I think you're going to get there but how do they follow you I'm sure everybody who listens to this podcast already follows you but if they don't if you're listening and you don't already follow me but you'd like to you can find me on pretty much every social media out there as uh, astronaut abby i also have a website which is astronautabby.com and you can also find information about ordering or pre-ordering my new book dream big at astronautabby.com and additionally for anyone listening if you'd like to follow the Mars Generation nonprofit and, and be a part of the work that we're doing to inspire and support the next generation in doing great things you can follow us on social media at again the Mars Generation or at our website themarsgeneration.org thank you so much and um good luck with the book and everything else it's been a pleasure chatting to you thank you i appreciate it despite being 8am i really enjoyed this <laughs> ah, thank you so much to abigail harrison the astronaut abby for joining us here for this episode of the cosmic shed i hope you enjoyed that uh, i'm looking forward to reading the book the physics world have asked me to review it i'll post a link to that review uh, when that's done but that won't be done for a while because, as you heard, I haven't got the book yet. Uh, we'll be back very soon with an episode on Midnight Sky, the new film with George Clooney and Felicity Jones. And thank you very much for listening. The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network. <laughs>